As humans, we often struggle with context when it comes to our faith and regularly fail to apply the Word of God in our daily lives. Verita's podcast is a weekly Bible study led by Rev. C.B. Samuel and through it, we try to understand and locate the roles we are called to play in the world we live in by delving into the teachings of the Holy Bible. We welcome you to join us in learning more from the Word of God and in learning how to live out meaningful lives as Christians. Good evening and uh, this is the eighth study on the book of Revelation and it's nice to see all of you who are here and uh, let's get started. Uh, this is the eighth study on the book of Revelation and we are recording the study and uh, it is uh, put up on Anchor and because of that on Spotify and uh, And uh, so the study is basically uh, helping us to know what is in the book of Revelation. Now, uh, we have come almost to the end of the end, uh, because the end was a long end, starting in chapter 4, when John began to see uh, what was uh, going to happen. Now, Jesus, in his teaching, uh, when he was on earth, he told his disciples about things that would happen. And then he used a phrase. He said, it is the beginning of the birth pangs. So uh, the end, uh, as we see in the scripture, is the, not the end of history and not the end of everything. But it's basically the end of one particular age and the beginning of a new age, a new, uh, you know, way, a new thing that God is going to do. Now, interestingly, the New Testament usage of this new, it doesn't use the word new age. In fact, it uses the fact of, uh, you know, the day of the Lord. That means it is the, the Lord's intervention. And so there was a phrase which was very popular in the time when Jesus came, which marked this hope of the people that history will come to an end and God will establish his kingdom. And uh, that's what they were looking for. And the phrase that they used was the kingdom of God. So when Jesus came, he announced that the kingdom had come. So in some ways, the day of the Lord or the kingdom of God or the end has already been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. But uh, it has not culminated. And that is why Jesus told the disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even towards the end of his life, before he was uh, taken up uh, to heaven, he, the disciples asked him very specifically whether this was the, you know, whether this was a time for the kingdom to come. And Jesus said, uh, you know, the time is decided by the Father. And so we have this uh, situation where the end has already been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. But at the same time, there is an end, ending of the end. You know, that is another important way of looking at it. Because it's not an end which is an endless going on and on. And uh, the book of Revelation is more a description of actually when that ending takes place. 
And what we have seen so far is the process. Because John was concerned, like everybody else in the early church, because they, their understanding of the end would have been basically influenced by their understanding of Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus had told them that he was going off and he will come back and he will take them and uh, there are you know he said there are many rooms in my father's mansion and uh, i will come and take you so there was the expectation that they believed that jesus is going to come during their lifetime and that was very clear even the apostle paul when he writes about the end he would say that uh, you know those who died in christ will come with jesus and those of us who are here, he almost believed uh, that Jesus would come in their lifetime. And that is not just the, the characteristic of the early church. It is the characteristic of church all through history. Every generation lived with the hope that their generation could be the last generation. And there are enough reasons for it, because if the early church uh, was faced with the uh, temptation, you know, the persecution, natural to think that this could be the end because the persecution was so bad and uh, they were expecting the end to come and then every time there is persecution all through history there is more a desire to see god come and not just persecution but even the fact of seeing evil around even if we are not persecuted people expected this would happen because there is enough teaching in the new testament like Paul writing to Timothy would say, in the last days, people will be like this. And so when you see people like that, it is easy to believe that we are in the last days. So in many ways, the followers of Jesus were always living with that hope that this would be the end. But uh, it has not been the end so far. Uh, and uh, But it's very important to go to the scripture to find out certain things that we can strongly hold on to. And so for the Apostle John, who was on Patmos at this time, the whole uh, concern was, was, is this the end? And so God, through Jesus Christ, reveals to them this book of Revelation, where he reveals and John is asked to write down <laughs> the revelation as he saw it. That's why it's called the revelation. And uh, as I said, there are certain things which are significant in this book of Revelation. It's the place of heaven itself, where the throne of God and everything that is happening, whether on earth or on heaven, is centered around that reign of God. And that is what the early church strongly believed in. Not only early church, even before that, the Old Testament uh, followers of Christ, God, the people of Hebrews, and for them, the strongest, God is on the throne. And wherever they were, they could call out to God to act. And I believe that's a very central theme in the book of Revelation. And here it is depicted with God on the throne and John sees it. In the midst of all that is happening, there is God on the throne. And not only is God on the throne, there is a lot of worship taking place. And worship not simply celebrating God, but actually celebrating God's character of judging the world. And so that is very important because when we look at worship today, 
it is far removed with the from the hope of the people that god would act it was largely worship which talked about god as god who will do things and so what happens is that in heaven a lot of activities are born out of that worship out of the presence of god on the throne and god controls and directs things on earth but what we saw from chapter 6 onwards was mainly the judgment of god on the world because the world was not walking according to god in fact it was under the control as paul would say the prince of the air the one who is the people have a spirit of disobedience and so what we see basically the book of revelation is god continuously sending things to punish people to get them to turn around but actually people don't turn around and then comes the climax when finally there is the introduction of specific characters which tell us as to how the devil works or the evil one works first depicted in the form of a dragon and then a, a, a beast and these things or are actually seen as embodiment of evil and uh, so there is you know the hostility towards god which is basically triggered off by the dragon or serpent as we know or satan as he is called now so from chapter 12 onwards we begin to see in the book of revelation uh, a portrait or a revelation to john about the things that are behind all the things that are happening on earth and if you remember i said john's central theme is that there is warfare or there is war in heaven and uh, so that is where it starts off and then we have a series of uh, you know things that are happening and we saw it and finally what we saw in chapter 17 and 18 last time is that the entire thing is embodied in a person or a nation or a system and the name used is babylon and if you remember i said as to how that babylon could be either a nation or a system and uh, basically what we notice is that the hostility towards god is a hostility that is a global hostility and two particular systems are in the forefront of that hostility one is religion and second is uh, the monetary system so two particular systems and both these systems are used in the hostility to god and the instrument of this hostility is largely the nations so we have a very interesting uh, combination towards the end of history in the hostility towards god there are three main fact um, three main actors the state which is which means the political leadership secondly the market which is uh, depicted in terms of the prophet and what was happening in chapter 18 and then the religion so three interesting things come together and to work against god that's what we saw last time and we saw how god destroys babylon and first babylon is destroyed by itself because the nations which it was using rebelled against it and then god himself punished babylon the whole system collapsed 
And so we are almost towards the end. And that's what we saw in chapter 18. And uh, now I want to look today at chapter 19 and 20, which is actually the end of the end. That is the end of the dragon or Satan. And the everything that is evil is destroyed in these two chapters. And, uh, and that is the, uh, you know, as I said, the culmination of history, as far as the Bible is concerned, the culmination of human history. And then we have the final chapters on 21 and 22 of Revelation, which talks about new heaven and new earth and God's new kingdom. Now, it's very interesting how John saw it. Now, uh, it's quite difficult, as I said, the book of Revelation, where, to place it in terms of other prophetic uh, literature. But on one hand, it is easy to understand. There is nothing so complicated. The only complicated things would be the numbers and names, like who is Babylon? And, uh, you know, what does 144,000 mean? All those things are a problem. But apart from that, there is nothing of a great uh, puzzle in understanding, you know, things happening as seal is opened and an angel throws things on earth and things get destroyed and then the trumpet is blown and things are destroyed on earth. And so it's kind of a easy to understand. It's like watching something of a movie where there is a lot of destruction, punishment taking place. And uh, only when you start uh, trying to connect it to our times, we run into a problem because is it about our time now or is it about a future time? But when we come to the 19th and 20th chapter, uh, it is very clear not about whether it's our time or future time, but basically it is about how the end will look like. And so I want to look at that today. And in chapter 19, uh, there are, uh, you know, two major sections. One is, as usual, there is worship in verses 1 to verse 10 onwards. There is worship, you know, in the midst of, because Babylon had just fallen and there is a celebration. And so we are taken, or at least John is taken to see that celebration. This is how he says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, and he has avenged her blood on her, the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Let us, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, 
bright and clean, was given to her to wear, find it and stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, very interesting passage. First thing that you notice here is the use or, or the reference to the word hallelujah, a word which is so common these days. We all, you know, are grown up knowing using hallelujah. Now, in the New Testament, there is no use of hallelujah other than these four references in the book of Revelation. It's very much used in the Old Testament. The word hallelujah is connect, can be connect, linked to two words, hallel and uh, luya, you know, Yahweh. It's basically praise God. That's what it is. And in the Old Testament, the word was very common. But in the New Testament, there is no use of hallelujah at all other than revelation using it. In heaven's worship, you know, a lot of words perhaps uh, which we use on earth, maybe ending its uh, shelf line, shelf time would be ending with the earth itself. But this word, interestingly, is a word that is used in heaven when it says, praise God, hallelujah. And uh, so John hears it in heaven, the praise to God. And uh, what, is, what we notice is that this praise begins first, it says, like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. And uh, John hears a big sound. Now, it may not be a great multitude, but definitely it was a loud sound. And then, and then in verse uh, 4, it says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. Now, the worship is not just the worship, that sound of worship, but actually specific people who are termed as a title as 24 elders and the four living creatures. We've seen this uh, picture earlier also, the 24 elders, it would mean because we are 12 disciples and there are 12 in the Old Testament tribes, the leaders of the 12 tribes. So it could be a picture to say the old and the new, the old Testament or the Hebrews and the church, you know, 12, 12 as a number, 24 elders and four living creatures. Again, in, in the beginning of Revelation, we saw, you know, each of them actually representing, you know, some particular animal looking kind of thing. So almost to say heaven and earth. And they fell down and worshiped God uh, who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. Again, it's almost like the first verse. Again, he hears a whole lot of people. So it's almost as though it's a ripple effect. You know, there is praise which comes from the multitude, praise which comes from the 12, 24 elders, then the praise that, the call to praise that comes from the throne, because it is a victory. It's a victory sound because Babylon had been defeated and all of them were singing. Importantly, what they were singing about is the character of God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God 
for true and just are his judgments what they were celebrating is the fact that god is truthful and just a very central piece of heaven's worship and it says god condemned the great prostitute that was babylon who corrupted the earth by her adulteries corrupted the earth and the word here is not so much people as much as the earth itself because of the way they destroyed the earth using everything that is possible and also shed the blood of god's servants and so this was a time in which god was avenging on her the blood of his servants so we find what they were celebrating was the fact that evil had been punished evil or the the uh, the devil himself or babylon as it's called which influenced the earth against god and actually was violent towards god's people and that's what we notice here that that is why the celebration is again hallelujah is a cry of victory a cry of victory the smoke from her goes up forever and ever the destruction is complete and so they sing it over and again 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 in verse 6 it says let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory because the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready now here we are introduced with the concept of the bride now from paul's letters in the new testament we know that the church is called the bride of christ so we have here what is said the wedding supper of the lamb that is an announcement of the celebration the victory is over and now what is going to happen is that god is going to have a great supper in heaven the wedding supper of the lamb and the supper is about the lamb's wedding with his bride that is the church and we will look at it uh, later as we go on it's only an announcement the wedding supper was not held it was an announcement blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb now the whole question is who are those who are invited because the church is the bride so the bride is not invited the bride is part of the the bride and bridegroom are central in the wedding now it could be as some bible scholars say it could be uh, people who are uh, you know the old testament saints and others because when it talks about the church in the new testament it doesn't broaden it to include people like abraham and moses and others the church is definitely those who are redeemed by the blood of christ in the new testament understanding so it's very uh, hard to try and talk about the church as you know everybody else as the bride and so it could be that uh, you strictly speaking the bride if the bride is the church then those who are invited are all those who are uh, you know the saints of the old testament type now it's very hard to uh, make a separation because uh, you know israel also is seen as the bride and many times god's anger against israel was that if you look at the book of hosea was a fact of a wife who was unfaithful so even though israel is not specifically called the bride and in the new testament paul calls the church a bride uh, it is possible that you know perhaps those invited would have been the angels 
to everyone to see the wedding. And so it says here that uh, the blessed are those who are invited. And, but it talks about the bride as someone who is given to wear fine linen, bright and clean. And this fine linen, John says, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And a very important uh, introduction about this, uh, the, you know, where, where Paul talks in Ephesians, the church will be presented without blemish. And here, that blemish is actually, it's the good, the righteous acts of God's holy people. And I want to emphasize that because often when we talk about being presented without blemish, there is a feeling that we are talking about the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. But I, the, God, the Bible also expects the people of God to walk in righteous acts. We can't cover, stand behind the righteousness of Jesus. The purpose of Jesus in his redemption was to produce for himself a people who are righteous, who are holy, so in that, and of course, the church has got its all its limitations now. But one day, when we see Jesus, John says, we will be like him. And so heaven has no place for people who are not made righteous. And so God works on us. And so we find here, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, uh, so the announcement is being made and John is overwhelmed, overwhelmed with watching the last few incidents that he is seeing. You know, the, the victory cry in heaven and the celebration talking about God's righteousness and the announcement about the bride that John is so overtaken with this. It says in verse 10, I fell at the feet to worship him. He fell at the feet to worship the angel who was giving him the commentary and taking him around. But he said to me, don't do that. He said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He said, come on. In heaven, there is no place for anyone else to be in the center other than God himself. So as soon as John fell to worship him, he said, don't, don't do that. You know, I'm just like you. And instead he says, worship God, worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I like another translation which says, the character of prophecy is to point towards Jesus. And so John, the, when John was so excited with all that was happening and he almost worshipped the messenger, the messenger had to correct him to say, it's not about me, you know, worship God. And all the prophecy that I'm telling you, I'm showing you is to point to Jesus. And I think that's a very important correct, you know, warning for us because these days there are a lot of prophetic teaching and we need to discern what is the intention of that prophetic teaching? If the intention of the prophetic teaching is to basically promote the messenger or we get caught up with the numbers and figures, then it's not a prophecy that is from God. It has to point towards Jesus. That is basically what John heard. And then after that, 
John begins to see something else. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges the wages of war. His eyes are like bla blazing fire and his head are and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John begins to see the final act of the culmination of this whole history with this war that is going to take place between the beast and the prophet and, of course, the dragon himself. And that is what's going to happen. And so John, when he's listening to this victory sound, the multitudes cheering God, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and a voice from heaven saying, praise God. And God is just and true. And the whole gathering joined together and the announcement that we are almost there. There is going to be the wedding supper of the lamb. John is so overwhelmed. And he begins to see now another vision or another part. And that is the appearance of Jesus himself. Now, if you notice here, there are been crossed many words which were about the name that was given. It started off by saying a rider who is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges, judges and wages war. The first thing that we notice when Jesus appears here is that he is presented as the one who is faithful and true, faithful to his promises and truthful in what he says. Very important for us because, you know, when we go through difficult times, sometimes we wonder about God himself and God's character. And what John sees here is that even though you know, it's taken thousands of years and evil has continued to thrive. The one thing is that God is in control. He's faithful and true and with justice, he judges and wages war. We can be so sure that God's way of doing, he will do it with justice. And then secondly, we notice later on, it says in verse 12, he has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. Now, one of the Bible scholars says giving of names is that in which the person who gives the name is about the one who is given a name. And so the picture, the picture here is when somebody gives a name to another person, they are in authority. When they knight somebody or they give a reward for somebody, they call them somebody. Now, here what we see is that he has a name no one knows other than him. So basically the picture that we have is that there's nobody in authority over Jesus himself. He is God. And so it says he has a name written on him. No one knows but he himself. 
So that's the second mention of a name. Then the third one, which talks about is that on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he is true, faithful, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And of course, he has a name which he gives on himself, which nobody knows. Perhaps on that day, we will hear that also being talked about because the Bible has many names for Jesus. And here we have these names given here. And so what happens? He appears. And it says here in verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. Yeah, there's one more name there. His name is the word of God. And so we find, in fact, that is a weapon that he has because it says the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And basically we see Jesus being presented as somebody who is true, faithful, just in what he does and a person whose name is the word of God and a person who is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is the presentation of Jesus as mentioned here. And it says here that he was dressed, you know, he, it says he was dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now it is not the blood so far of, uh, you know, killing anybody, but actually Isaiah says in the last days, it says, you know, there's a verse there which says he was, you know, he was red in his clothes were red because of pressing on the wine press, you know, the picture of judgment of carrying out the judgment of God. So basically what we see is the appearance of Jesus is that he has now come to rule with an iron scepter. And the way he is going to conquer is through his word. You know, these days we pray about God and we pray to, to God about a lot of things that are happening. I've been following the things in Myanmar and somebody sent me, you know, a lot of prayer requests to pray for Myanmar. And we don't know what God, how God is going to act. But one thing we know that he just has to say a word. And that's what we are praying for, that God, you would speak a word. You remember in the New Testament, when Jesus was here, there were people who went to him and said, you say a word, it will happen. You say a word, you don't have to come, say a word. And so my prayer, even as we see things around us, is to say, God, you say the word. Because that's a very powerful weapon. Because he doesn't have to do anything. He just has to say a word. All of creation will act. And it says here that he is called the word of God. And he's called the king of king and lord of lords. And then from verses 17 to 21 is the defeat of the evil one. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midday. Come gather together for the great supper of God. Now, this is not the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here it is called the great supper of God. And the supper is not that God is going to eat. God is going to destroy the wicked people and their bodies are made available for the birds of the air. So it says, come gather together. 
for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, the mighty, the horses and their rulers, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. What we see here is that God, the word is that Jesus says a word, and then there is destruction on earth. And this is the culmination, you know, people die, you know, doesn't matter who they are, whether they're rulers or they are free or slave, great and small. Definitely they are being separated because earlier we saw those who have the image of the beast and those who don't have the image of the beast. And then I saw, he says, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. You remember earlier we said, read about how they were all gathering, that culmination will be they'll come together for a war in a place called Armageddon, or it's called the Armageddon. But the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So what had happened here is there's not much of a big warfare, but actually there is God, Jesus's words. And when he speaks, what happens is the war is over. It says here, the beast was captured and the false prophet. There was the accompaniment of a false prophet who prophesied, who performed signs on its behalf. And with these signs, they had deluded the people who received the mark on, of the beast and worshipped its image. Now the two of them, that is the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is a picture that will come again. I'll look at it then. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And then in chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him. Now here we see the beast and the prophet being already thrown into the, you know, it says the fire of sulfur or uh, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. But the dragon, the one who is the main person behind it, the Satan, he is now taken hold of, ceased. It says with the great chain, he comes or the angel comes, seizes him, and then he's bound and thrown out for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And this is for a period of thousand years. After that, he would be set free for a short time. Now we begin to have a little bit of a difficult uh, presentation, but it's a very beautiful presentation, a very interesting presentation. We saw that the Satan who was the culprit behind the whole thing is not thrown into the fire but instead, he is seized and put bound with chain and thrown away in a place where he can no longer influence people because he actually was a deceptive person. And so to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore, they were thrown off. And then 
there is a period called thousand years. Now, this is one of the major theological problems because there are three views on it because there is no mention of these thousand years anywhere in the Jesus teaching or even in the Old Testament times. Here, there is a very specific time called thousand years. But the three views is that, you know, when, is there going to be a thousand years? Will Jesus come before the thousand years or will he come after the thousand years or will he come, uh, you know, or this thousand years is just a symbolic thing. So in, uh, if you are interested in theological discussion, you will find three words being used, premillennial, postmillennial and amillennial. Now, I am of the view that very strong people who believe in Christ and very good students of the word of God are in all these three uh, groups. So that means that no one of them is going to be punished for the view that we have. You know, but it's very important. It influences how we look at the world. Now, when you say premillennium, you're saying is that Jesus will come, you know, before this thousand years period and he will set up his reign on earth. Now, our millennial people would say there is no such thing as millennial because if you take Jesus' teaching seriously, Jesus comes and that is the end. There is no thousand years. He sets up his kingdom finally on earth and he will rule forever. The post-millennium people will say Jesus comes after the thousand years and these thousand years are actually now. You know, the time when, you know, world is becoming a better place and things like that. That is what they believed. And now more and more people are between premillennial and amillennial. There are less people who are on the postmillennial because the postmillennial people will find it hard because they expect things to improve on earth. And, uh, but things are not improving. It actually was a view that came in before the first world war. And they thought after, you know, the world was improving with education and all those things. And they thought this is the time when we as humans can actually establish the kingdom of God and then Jesus will come. Now, I believe that either it is premillennial or amillennial. Amillennial saying this is just a figurative thing. There is no. But what we notice here is that definitely it is a period which is very close to many of the Old Testament prophecies, even though it doesn't talk about a millennium period, the characteristic of these thousand years when Satan has been bound and he is kept from deceiving the nation is very interesting. It's a time when, you know, uh, some of you have heard me do studies on the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, when things, when God reigns, things would happen. You know, there would be a reign in which there is justice, there is compassion, there is caring, and there is equality in the world. And, you know, the, what we call the kingdom of God. But what, what, what is the significance of these thousand years here? What we find here is that it says, John saw, it says in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And then he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their forehead. They came to life 
and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now we see what is happening is there is, you know, when in the book of Revelation, as I told you, these are all revelations. So there may be certain things which we can't understand because there are people still around. You know, we know that people were destroyed, but there are still people. And for a thousand years, the reign of the world is in the hands of those, you know, who were, you know, assigned to be seated on the thrones. And also those who had suffered during the time when the beast was around. Now, what is interesting is that these thousand years, whether it is one day or a thousand years, it's the time in which the righteous people reign over the world. And that's something that the Old Testament, New Testament expects to happen when the world will be reigned by God's people. And what is interesting in the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, when he, he confronts them about them going to court, taking issues among themselves to people who are unbelievers, Paul will write and say, you know, don't you know you are supposed to judge the world. You are supposed to be the ones who will rule over. So don't go to others. And I think it's a very interesting imagery. What happens here is in the thousand years, we are seeing how the world will look like when God's righteous people are in leadership. And I like it because it talks about the whole thousand years when things are very different. And I believe when I look at this passage, that one of the saddest thing is that the church of Jesus Christ, that's why Paul was very disappointed, which is made up of God's people, you know, who know God and who are the ones who are called to rule the world or judge the world are so divided among ourselves. And the world has not seen how the world will look like if righteous people rule this world. We have had so many people. And perhaps when you look at world history, there were very few. I can't even think of many who ruled for a long time, who actually perhaps Calvin was one person. And then we have the Dutch uh, you know, person, Abraham Kipper. And uh, basically very few. But how will the world look like? You know, because these days also we are always eager, you know, when a country has got a good number of Christians to say, okay, if you have a person who is a good believer as a president, the country will look different. Unfortunately, the truth is that there have been many countries which have had very committed people in leadership. And what studies have shown me, I remember being a part of a group where we did a study on how does, you know, how are evangelicals or Bible-believing Christians involved in politics? And the study, unfortunately, was a very uh, big eye-opener for most of us. It said that even, in, you know, in the last hundred years, perhaps, more Bible-believing Christians have been politically engaged, much more than before, which is a good news. But on the other hand, wherever they were given leadership, in that study was about Latin America, Africa, and I think in Asia, it was about Philippines. And it looked at people who got onto power, like the Argentinian president once, I think it was some General Moss, and then in Zambia, where you had an Assemblies of God person who was the president, then in, and then in the Philippines, where you had a born-again person who was a president. 
for some time. And they said almost all of them were actually uh, impeached because of their own corrupt and evil ways. Before they got onto the seat, they looked good. But once they came onto power, they were not people who people could trust. And it's a sad picture. And leave alone what's happening in political situation, even in our church. You know, it's filled with corruption. It's filled with evil. But what it says here in Revelation is that during the thousand years, you will find that when the world is ruled by righteous people, the world will be a replica of what the Old Testament talks about. And of course, it says here that the two groups of people who will rule, it says the on the throne, those who were given authority to judge. And when we look at the New Testament, Jesus gave authority to his disciples and you will sit on the throne and rule over. And also those who had suffered during the time of the beast and the mark on the forehead, those people who refused. Not everybody will rise up. Of course, when we die, our spirits go to be with Jesus, go to be with God. But resurrection in bodily form happens not at that time. And so here it says, it says here, they came to life and reigned for a thousand years. And then it says in verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. It doesn't mean their spirits were not living, but they did not get a body. And then it says, this is the first resurrection. The first group of people who actually will have a bodily resurrection will be this group apart from Jesus, of course, will be those who will judge, rule the world, and also those who died during the time of the beast. And it says, Bless, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. And so there is a period which is called thousand years. And so this is where thousand would mean, you know, they say the Latin word for thousand is millennium, annum. Annum means year and milli. So that's where they got the word millennium. And so when the thousand years are over, you know, thousand years of peace, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog and to gather them for battle. In numbers, they are in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's holy people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here we see what happens is that Satan is released. Now, the question is, why was Satan released? Now, 1,000 years was a long period, according to this number, in which you experienced God's reign. But as soon as Satan was dis uh, released, he went back to his job. And people who experienced God and saw the goodness of God, as soon as Satan came out and he deceived the nations, he was able to get people together. And that shows the human nature. 
the incapability to do what God wants them to do. It's just a matter of evil influence around them. They seem to fall. And no wonder the New Testament would say that we, by ourselves, cannot meet the requirements of God unless we believe in God and we have received the Holy Spirit. And so what happens here is that, again, it says the nations are surrounding the city he loves. And Bible scholars would say that this whole culmination would be around Jerusalem because it's called as the city loves or the new Jerusalem, which will come. But fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the end of the war between God and the evil one. Let me stop here because I realize the time is already seven. And uh, next week I will finish uh, the looking at the book of Revelation. And then one more study where I want to look at some of the uh, themes like we looked at millennium today. What about uh, you know rapture? What about tribulation? These are words which are used you know, when we talk about the end, but it's not in the book of Revelation. But I think it's appropriate that I look at it. So let me close now. Any questions you would have? You know, it's a very uh, interesting book, you know, interesting section, because this is the culmination of the entire, you know, history comes to an end with the de defeat of the evil one. And we see the evil one, you know, doing everything possible to deceive people. If there's one thing in Revelation that stands out is that deception is the one characteristic for which the evil one is known. Devil deceives people. And no wonder the New Testament warns us to not be deceived. And that's why Paul, uh, Peter writes and says that the devil is like a lion. You know, it says, in, I think it's in First Peter, when he talks about warning us, he says, the devil is like a lion that looking around to see whom he might devour. So he says, be careful. Uh, you know, it says we, we need to protect each other. And it says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, it says in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil's agenda, you know, that's why C.S. Lewis is very interesting. He talks about these little devils which go around and they try and deceive people. They make you feel good and deception. And we see it today in our political leadership and the whole area of falsehood. And we see that people are falling victims to deception. Thank you for taking time out and being a part of this Bible study. Veritas Podcast is a podcast run by students and we upload every week on Wednesdays. If you find our content engaging and wish to know more, kindly subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed by this initiative.